Good morning. <laughs> um, growing up, my dad had a little mantra for my siblings and I, um, though I was really the only person who was supposed to, like I was like the one that had to follow it. Everybody else got a free pass because he realized it didn't work that well. Um, and that was Peterson's never quit and never cry. Um, most of the time that was involved with sports or one time we were at a rally's gym and I was like 10 and I was on the elliptical and I was crying and he was like, Mia, you can stop. And I said, Peterson's never quit, never cry. Um, <laughs> and he looked like a real bad dad, but you know, I was, I was moving. <laughs> they were like, why is this man making his daughter work out like this? Um, but I would say it to myself when school got overwhelming. Laura would say it to me when we'd have leg day at the gym. I even said it while I was preparing this sermon, like Peterson's never quit, never cry. Um, some of you might be thinking, wow, that makes me make a lot more sense, and she probably should talk to somebody about that. <laughs> but that aside, it has shaped parts of who I am and what I think about perseverance. My mom, some of you have met her, may be one of the funniest people I know. Um, she's way cooler than me. My whole life, I thought people just wanted to be friends with me so they could be closer to her. Um, she was a comfort to my friends in youth group, um, just a really warm and welcoming person, but also she's my mom, which meant she had to lay down the law sometimes. Um, I remember in seventh grade, it was like my first middle school dance, there was an eighth grader who had just been broken up with, that was the rumor, and Nellie's Hot in Her was playing. Um, it says, take off all your clothes, and that girl ripped her shirt off and was swinging it around. Now, she did get suspended. <laughs> and I came home and I told my mom, and I was like, mom, hear what happened. And she like listened and was like, wow, that's crazy. And then she looked me in the eye and she said, Mia, if I ever hear about you doing that, You'll catch me picking you up from school going, hey, I'm here to pick up Mia. <laughs> uh, we had a good chuckle about it then and a good chuckle about it now. And though most of me doubted she would actually do that, there was a part of me that knew she was crazy enough to do it. Um, the way my mom parented didn't communicate, oh, you better not do this. It was, I wish you would try, see what happens. Um, <laughs> and... There are many more stories like this in my life, and I'm sure in your life, maybe, um, of your parents teaching you who you are, what you are, what we do as a family. As the Petersons, this is what we do and what we don't do. Being a part of a family means there are certain rules that you follow and certain consequences that will come. Whether it's how your curfew works or if you get paid allowance or can casually call your parents by the first name, that ain't my life, but that might be yours. <laughs> um, to be a Peterson means something different than being a Kilo, than being a Miller. To be a part of a family means something, it defines something about who you are and shapes how you will interact with the world. In the Old Testament, God tells us his name. He says, my name is Jehovah. It is revealed to Moses at the burning bush so he can tell the Israelites who sent him and that it's okay to leave Egypt with him. He's saying, I am the I am. As the Old Testament continues to unfold, God continues to show more of his character through his name. Um, one of these modifiers or descriptors being the word Mekodishkim. Full disclosure, the only reason I know that is because for crew, we did a Names of God series and I Googled a list and that one was on there, but I liked it. <laughs> um, and so this name, Jehovah Mekodishkim, means I am the Lord who sanctifies you. It's used in Leviticus 20, seven through eight where it says, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Consecrate, sanctify, and holy all have a very similar meeting, but, we are, but are wrapped up as different parts of speech. To sanctify something means to declare it as holy. To consecrate also means to set it apart as uh, to be used in a religious ceremony. 
Holiness, holy, is also to be set apart, but in this case, it's being used as an attribute of God. It is something he is, and so it has a little bit more weight to it. Because God is holy, it means that he is set apart, and the reason he is set apart is because he is perfect, he is without blemish. And so when the Lord says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, he's saying, I am the God who sets you apart and makes you more holy, makes you more perfect, makes you more like me. When he gives this statement, God has had them wandering around the desert, the Israelites wandering through the desert, in the wilderness, been handed down decrees and statues left and right, uh, providing manna and water and protection, getting them ready to enter into this promised land. Uh, this name is placed in the midst of lots of rules about idolatry, bestiality, marrying someone and then their mom, you know, just casual, everyday thoughts. <laughs> um, but, but he's giving these commands because, sadly, this land is not empty. It would have been easier if it was, but alas, God rarely, rarely invites his people into easy things. They're going to live in close quarters with a bunch of people in this land who are doing those exact things he's telling them not to do. And he's saying, don't be like them. Keep your eyes on me. Be like me. Be holy because I am your God. You are my people. You are my family. And this theme of keep looking at me, be like me, carries with the people of God and is affirmed in this letter that Peter is writing. He addresses it in verse 1 to the exiles, the sojourners, the travelers in this metaphorical wilderness scattered throughout Asia who have been called to this life of following Jesus. And then in verse 14, he writes, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you first lived in ignorance. But just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, because I am, be holy because I am holy. We are called to remember whose family belong, that we belong to because we are obedient children. Now, as children, we ask why. <laughs> um, as it's been joked about many times from the front, I am into K-pop and anime. It is my hobby, I'll say that. Um, but this has allowed me to venture into a bunch of different cultures cooking because when they eat, they be eating good. And I'm, I'm like, I want that to be like me. Um, but I have no idea what I'm doing. My family wasn't like plain eaters, but we weren't like super adventurous. <laughs> um, and so I have no idea what it should taste like. Um, I have no idea the balance. And so when I get a recipe, I follow it to the T because I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know, I don't want to disrespect the culture. Um, but there are a couple things that I've made so many times now that I can try cooking methods and varying levels of spices. And as a garlic girl, I add so much garlic and ginger to my heart's content. Um, I have been handed the basics to hopefully explore the fullness of what these flavors have to offer. And so the family rules are there to allow you to understand how, what's your place in this world, what's your place in this family, what's your place in this world, and what do we do as we interact with those around us. Peter is asking us to consider, what must I do now because I am a part of this family? I want to clarify that we're not asking what must I do to remain a part of this family. You're, you're secure, you're not going to get kicked out, you don't have to do all of the do's and don'ts to stay a part of this family. It's just now that you're here, what's next? Uh, we talk a lot about how the gospel is supposed to do something to us, to change us, um, and this is a part of this. This holiness and sanctification is a huge part of doing. Now, if you're looking for that list of do's and don'ts, I don't have it for you today. I do have a book suggestion, though. 
and it is called the Bible. Because <laughs> um, you'll start reading that sucker and start praying dumb prayers like, Jesus, make me more like you. Um, and he'll show you the parts of yourself that are unholy, that are unlike him. Um, they are not joking about scripture being a double-edged sword. And at first, it's encouraging to hear these things. In our call to worship, we read, we read Psalm 139, and the first verse is, You have searched me, and you know me. How wonderful it is to be searched and known and seen by the Lord. When you start this journey in sanctification, you start feeling a little bit more joyful, you got a little bit more patience, uh, you're able to show your spouse a little bit more grace, you show those, those kids those mercy, you know, that undeserved, you know, you withhold that punishment, withhold that wrath, and you're like, yeah, I'm killing this. <laughs> um, but then a dreaded command comes up, forgive an enemy, ask somebody for forgiveness. You read, have no other gods before me, and suddenly, I should delete TikTok, or you should give up that free night and invite someone over, pops into your brain, and you said, oh, no, 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 I can't do that. Um, or the list of what to do becomes a little too long, and you think, it's just hard to exist sometimes. Today, I, got, I didn't get that much sleep. I didn't eat the right food. I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to survive, and now you want me to move towards being perfect? I just, I don't think I can handle that. And the family motto of be holy for I am holy starts to show you how unholy you are and how much easier it is to live like everyone else rather than set apart. And much like my sister, when she was five, you want to pack up your Animaniac suitcase and move into a hotel because being a part of this family sucks. <laughs> uh, verse 5 um, in Psalm 139 says, You hem me in behind and before me and lay your hand upon me. The first time I read this verse, I thought, oh, him, like, sweet, cozy, comforting. And it's like, no, that's not what that means at all. It means that you are completely surrounded. You are going to lose this battle. The only thing that will be accepted is complete and total surrender. And then you read the next chunk of verses in Psalm 139, and it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the depths, there too. And you start to think, man, is this a promise or a threat? <laughs> to be able to be molded and change will lead to discomfort. There is, an there is an aspect of being known and being perceived by the Lord that ultimately makes our skin crawl. What is he going to see? What is he going to ask me to do? What is he going to ask me to give up? I read an article, um, and it said, as long as God was an idea, an abstraction, a feeling, we were fine with God. Then Jesus showed up in the flesh, looking at us with those excavating eyes. God was suddenly as real and tangible on earth as in heaven, and we decided it wasn't a good place for God to be. Jesus would look at a person and would stare into their souls, his eyes digging into them, excavating the deepest recesses of their being, seeing them through and through, and we can only take so much of that. We said, Jesus, we have to watch ourselves too much around you. We feel hemmed in around you. Now go back to where you belong and be a good God, and maybe we'll see you on Sunday morning. Then we rolled the stone in front of the tomb. But even then, Jesus just came back and said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. To be seen, to be known, to be challenged by the Lord is wonderful and yet so terrifying. In my experience, this terrifying feeling comes when we're being pressed from all sides, this claustrophobic feeling from God that he's trying to do something with us to push us into holiness. There is this my house, my rules kind of feeling about it, and we just want to break from God. But then you read 
the next set of verses um, in Psalm 139 that says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like de the day, for the darkness is as light to you. And we realize that maybe there is no reason to hide. It's already being, it's been seen and accepted. You will be searched, and nothing within you will be found that hasn't already been embraced. Nothing in you that will disqualify you from the family, and nothing in that that the Lord can't take and redeem and use to make you more like him. And then you remember that the wilderness, the fire, the pottery, all the metaphors to describe struggle and change and growth are the Lord inviting you to walk and step into the light, to become more of who you were meant to be the whole time, not less, to be obedient children. We look back at Peter, the author of the letter that we were looking at, and you look at a story written um, in the Gospels, and you see that he was rebuked by Jesus more than any other disciple. Um, he actually is bold at one time and rebukes Jesus, and you're like, that's wild. Um, Jesus walks on water, and he hops in, and then he takes his eyes off him and sinks. And at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, he denies Jesus's three, Jesus three times. And yet, in these obvious, what seems to us obvious failure, failures, where Jesus sees Peter at his very worst, um, Peter is probably very embarrassed, um, he invites him to come in closer, to learn more about him, and to be a part of what he's doing. At the end of John, Jesus challenges Peter and says, take care of my sheep, continue to follow me. And so when he's saying in uh, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, when he's saying, set your hope on Christ, he's doing something, don't get distracted, but be holy, be the obedient children you're meant to be. He's speaking from a lived, grace-filled experience. When I think about holiness and sanctification, I can't help but think of 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We have unveiled faces before the Lord. There's nothing in between us. And it's very exposed, and it's a very vulnerable process, usually a little rough. Um, and yet... On the other side, you see that you have been changed, even if it's just one degree. And you say, I've experienced the Lord differently than I can ever imagine, sometimes more deeply than you ever thought possible. And you think, how can I ever go back? I think one of the places I felt this most deeply is in pride. I remember reading Psalm 51, and it says, you do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasures in burnt offering, but in a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you do delight. I... I'm a doer, naturally. <laughs> I want to be present. This is, I want to be God's best helper. Um, I'm also very competitive. Um, this has been one of the driving forces in my life. Jonathan likes to tell people that one time I babysat Jameson and I beat him twice in Uno. And when they came home, I was like, I beat Jameson twice in Uno. Jameson's five, six, five, six, six. I'm like, that's crazy. And I'm like, I don't understand why I did that. But there's a part of me that's like, you must win, you must be the best doer that there is to do. But I saw how it was affecting my relationships and I saw how it was affecting my friendships and I saw the distance between the Lord and me growing because I would not let him in because if I let him in, if I let him see my brokenness, will he trust me to do things anymore? And he's like, I didn't want you to do stuff in the first place. <laughs> I don't delight in sacrifices, I delight in a broken and contrite heart. 
And so whenever pride starts to flare up and I start to see how it's hurting the people around me, I'm like, oh, this is also affecting my relationship with the Lord. He's inviting me to let him come in and dig these parts out of me as an obedient child to be holy for he is holy. And so you unpack that suitcase that was just filled with toys and worthless things anyways, and you give your hopes and dreams and desires back to the only one who can be trusted with it, the Lord. In Luke, we are given an account of the Beatitudes. Um, Jesus was going around from town to town, um, and he was preaching, and when he was preaching, they were expecting the newest, the newest Ten Commandments, um, a new list of yes and no's that they could check and make sure that they were doing okay with. But he doesn't give that at all. He at first steps into, or he first addresses who he is. He comes in and he says, I have become to proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to see the oppressed set free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He says, I'm going to do that. This is who I am. And this is how it's going to play out. He says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Yes, we are called to be obedient children, but not obedience for obedience sake. It was all to live out this new kingdom brought by Jesus. This is the end game of holiness and sanctification. You can't force yourself into this kingdom lifestyle. You have to be alert and open to the call of the power of the gospel through the Spirit to make us more like him. To be holy as God is holy is to be poor in spirit, to hunger for righteousness, to weep, to be excluded, to rejoice in hope, to, pray, to love your enemies, pray for those who mistreat you, to give generously, forgive. And all of these things point to the table this is what happens here. Um, I know this is pretty short, but the band can make their way back up because they're going to play a song during our time of communion. In that, you will come up and take a piece of the bread and the cup, and we'll take it together. Jesus went to the cross to be the fulfillment of the promises made beforehand, to be the fulfillment of the covenant that would defeat sin and death to clear the way for his new kingdom. <laughs> The cross is the promise that Christ is redeeming all things, you included. There is an invitation to fully step into more of who God created to you to be, not less. And so we'll come receive the gifts of God for the people of God. And pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for being called to be children first and then called to obedience, that you are doing something more than we could ever ask or imagine um, in this time, Lord. And um, I pray that we would allow your word to do something to us. And when it does, and when we feel overwhelmed, that you would also meet us in that place and say, the light is where I live and the light is where you belong. And so come and be with me. God, I thank you for your son and how he changes all things and how he flipped the whole world upside down and how we get to be a part of that kingdom too. It's your name that I pray, amen.